The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today, if you're visiting with us, I'll tell you that we've been looking at a series which I had just begun that I said is going to have probably 12 parts, a topical series of messages in which I titled it In Christ Alone. I wanted to look with you at 12 cameo pictures of Christ himself, who he is and what he did in the scripture that we might glorify him. We looked first of all at Colossians chapter 1, an amazing short passage there that Paul describes Christ as the co-creator with the Father, that he was present at the creation and goes on to be that which holds the creation together, a great statement from Paul. Then last week we looked at Psalm 2, where David calls him God's established king, before whom all the powers of the earth must bow and literally kiss the sun, show their allegiance to him for the ultimate ruler. Now we go to something very different today on this Communion Sunday, another Old Testament passage familiar to you. You'll recognize what I read. And I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. As God's prophet is speaking about one who in the previous chapters is called the servant of the Lord because he comes to redeem Israel and take Israel out of captivity to Babylon and uh, raise them up. And he's one that will astonish people, we read in the previous chapter, 52, 14. Many will be astonished by him. Listen as I read Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6, familiar words. Who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. As I've said, we are pursuing here a series of epic Bible texts, most of which are quite well known. 
that tell us something about Jesus Christ, that we might better know Him and better worship Him. Colossians 1, two weeks ago, held up Christ in the creation, actually participating with the Father and those amazing words saying that He now holds the creation together by His power. Psalm 2, last time, held up Christ again in a glorious picture as the anointed king installed by his father before all time, before there was an earth. We read of the king installed, the ultimate king, before whom every power in this world must bow. Anyone who would want himself to be a leader or a dictator or a president or a prime minister in the presence of this one must kiss the Son of God in servile homage. Well, both of those previous passages painted Christ as very high and exalted. This morning we use the Nicene Creed as we like to do in December because of its emphasis on Christ and on a phrase like the words that He is very God, a very God. Those words always kind of thrill me when I say them. Those two opening texts that I've already brought to you set up certain expectations that, of course, Christ is a great personage. And you would think then, if I'm going to look at him and speak about him in ten other passages in addition to those first two, that there would be passages that would carry out his greatness consistently. After all, if the Bible, let's say, gave a physical portrait of Christ, which it does not, But if it did, and let's say Matthew somewhere described Jesus as a man and said he was six feet two inches tall and had dark hair and a thick brown beard, and then John came along and said, well, Jesus was about five foot six and had sandy hair, we would say, wait a minute, this isn't consistent. This isn't the same person. Well, we have something like that today because the person I read about here in Isaiah 53 is Christ. He's called the servant of the Lord here by Isaiah, if you want to really delve into what Isaiah is dealing with here, and I don't have time for much background today. But this servant of the Lord, we would think, ought to be consistent with what we hear about Christ in other places, not somehow seeming to be a very different person. And if you're still thinking about what we saw in Colossians 1 and Psalm 2, you would say, how can this person, described here as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, this doesn't sound like Jesus Christ. This can't be right. But here, of course, is the paradox of the Scripture. The Christ of glory is the Christ of the cross. And here we have this great passage that many of us would say, if there was no other indicator in all of the Old Testament that prefigured Jesus for us. If I've said to people before that if you have the 53rd chapter and maybe the 22nd Psalm, the 53rd of Isaiah, 22nd Psalm, the true detail-for-detail picture of Jesus going to the cross, if you didn't believe the Bible to be a unified book, you would say, well, those must have been written after he was crucified and inserted in the Old Testament after the fact. I'm not aware of any Bible critic, no matter how liberal, who holds such a thing. 
who says that those things came after. They came before. They came centuries before. I remember my childhood pastors leading us to the communion table. And nearly every time, one of those pastors just died just recently after his 100th birthday. And I remember them almost always quoting from Isaiah 53 as we were called to communion. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It used to send a chill down my spine to hear that before Communion Sunday. Well, I just have two points to draw on this Communion Day with a shorter message. First of all, from Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, I give you a point that's stated as a question. Who would have believed this? In fact, that's exactly what the first verse says. Who would have believed what he has heard from us? If you would look just before it, Verse 14 of the previous chapter, many were astonished by this picture that will be presented of Christ. Israel expected a redeemer. It was a time of liberation as they were being freed from chains and manacles and servitude in the land of Babylon. It was a time to celebrate. It was a time that chapter 52 says the Lord has bared his arm. In other words, the might of God was being shown on their behalf. That's 52.10. It says the Lord has bared his holy arm and all nations shall see his salvation. Sounds like the warrior God has come to free Israel. Well, how does a warrior God come forth? I know many of our young people and even many of you adults are well familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings stories. And it's always interesting to see how Tolkien gets characters into some impossible fix where the orcs are encircling. Orcs are horrible beings if you don't know anything about them. They're, I don't even want to describe them. They're just nasty. And they might be encircling the heroes and heroines, and, and, but someone is going to come in. The eagles come flying in to rescue, or quite often... Gandalf, the white wizard, comes riding on his mighty horse, white horse Shadowfax, with a glittering sword and men of armor in his train to save the day. Well, I'm sure when Israel heard the Lord was bearing his mighty arm, they looked for something like that. They looked for the servant of the Lord on a white horse. What What do they see? What is shown to them? Who has believed What God did is the point. Many are astonished at what God did and in what form he showed up in the the need of Israel and the hour of Israel's great weakness when they needed deliverance. The Savior God did not come as a Lord on a white horse with a flashing sword. That would have been what we would have done. We, and we would have made him, a, you know, a handsome warrior, seven feet tall probably, would have been about right size. I don't know what actor, I'm not up enough on young actors today to know who would portray this hero. I'd go for somebody like Robert Redford or show my generation there. Redford's a little too old for the part, I think. But uh, anyway, somebody that was handsome, muscular, tall, strong. What did Israel get when the Lord bared his arm 
and sent his servant. I wonder if you're aware of the fact that back in Leviticus, when God gave the law to Israel and gave them the instructions for how the priests would come and perform the rites of sacrifice in an approved way, there's actually detailed instruction in Leviticus 21 that a priest should not be someone with an obvious physical blemish. Now, there are no perfect people, but the priest was not supposed to be someone, let's say, who had a major birthmark maybe on his face, or someone who was a hunchback, or had, was born with missing fingers, or, or had a club foot. That person was disqualified before the Lord to serve as priest. On TV, maybe you saw what I did this past week, a very brief news item that rather fascinated me about a man. Don't know where he lived. I didn't catch that part of it. But a man who had a face transplant. Boy, it's amazing what medicine can do today. This, and this particular man, they had a very brief sort of cloudy shot of him uh, showing him before the surgery. This particular individual had tried to commit suicide with a gun in his mouth. He had ruined his jaw, ruined his lower face, ruined his nose and mouth. And they transplanted, rebuilt his jaw, and transplanted the face of a cadaver. Now, I can tell you he still wasn't Robert Redford, but he looked a whole lot different. Amazing. Amazing. Well, what about someone who comes as the servant of the Lord to redeem Israel? who looks like that. That's what Isaiah 53 is telling us, is the kind of one that God sent. In the case of Jesus, suffering before the cross reduced his humanity. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We're never told one word of description. But we like to think at least he was an average-looking man. He, he certainly was pleasant, probably, to look upon. We don't know for sure. But what we're told is he came and was so despicable by the time the treatment of the Romans and others had finished with him that nobody could even look at him. They drew back from even looking at him. Today I was driving here quite early, getting here before 7 o'clock and coming down Valley Road near Mannheim Township High School. It was kind of misty and I wasn't looking for a moment, and I realized, uh-oh, my, my car might hit that animal that's laying dead in the road. And, and just as the wheel did glance off the animal, I realized it was a skunk. Uh-oh. Quickly, I hit the window down buttons to let the fresh air in, because not only had I struck something repulsive already dead in the road, but the smell told me how repulsive it was. Do you think it's insulting if I say that Jesus, after the Romans had finished with him and half led and half carried him to the cross where they nailed him up, was as repulsive as roadkill? Does that sound insulting? I think it's actually pretty accurate. Jesus was horrible looking. Blood and sores and furrows from the whips in his body, black eyes. That's what they did to him. That's the servant of the Lord that God sent to Israel. And here we're reading in predictive prophecy that he would be 
one from whom men want to hide their faces. He was despised. He was stricken. He was smitten by God, wounded for us, and so on. He was crushed. The prophecy goes into great detail to make sure we don't miss it. What they did to Christ was horrible. The Puritan author Richard Sibbs said, Christ was never, though, more lovely to his church than when he was most deformed on her behalf. Do you understand what it meant that Jesus Christ came as the servant of the Lord, taking on himself your deformities, all the disqualifications that, according to Leviticus, said you couldn't go by yourself before God and and satisfy God's requirement to remit your sins. Christ came to be made into a repulsive wreck for you, that you might be adopted as the apple of God's eye, transformed by the borrowed righteousness of Jesus Christ to a state of loveliness when God looked on you. He, you see, came forth from the Father's side. He was a king, installed as a king. He was the co-creator. He was the one who held all things together. Everything that Colossians 1 and Psalm 2 said, he was. And he gave all that up to delve into the depths of humiliation in order to reach the most degraded specimens of humanity and give us the loveliness that he possessed. What a surprise. Who has believed what God did, says the prophet. Secondly and quickly today, our time is short. I would have you hear from verses 4 to 6 here that Christ came to bear our griefs and carry off all our sorrows. I've told you by way of an English lesson from this pulpit many times over the years that some of the most important words in scriptures are the smallest words. They're called prepositions. They tell of the relationship of one thing to another. And in this case, the key preposition I'm looking at is mainly in verse 5. Three letters, F-O-R, for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. A retired minister friend of mine from our denomination lives in New Holland. A few of you might know Stuart Sachs, fine man of God. He wrote a little tiny paperback book about the prophecy of Isaiah. It's been on my shelves for probably 25, 30 years. So I pulled out all the Isaiah commentaries this week when I was working on this message. And I noticed that I hadn't taken this little thin paperback by Stuart Sachs, published probably 30 years ago. And I thought, my mind said, oh, that's just a tiny little book. Isaiah is a big, a big book of big doctrines. I need the big commentaries. But I went and pulled off Stuart's little paragraph or little book and found this paragraph, I quote it. Stuart wrote, Because of his holiness, it was impossible for God to be indifferent concerning human sin. 
He either had to inflict punishment in his wrath or bear it himself. Because he chose to do the latter, we may speak gladly of his grace, for the body of God's own Son was shattered on the cross for our sins. Jesus took the wrath. We sang in Christ alone a couple of weeks ago. Some of you know the story. I, be, I do believe it is true that the Gettys who wrote that wonderful hymn that is now a great favorite were approached by a denomination that will remain anonymous, but some of you were once members of it, a denomination who wanted to put in Christ alone in their new hymnal. And they said, well, Mr. and Mrs. Getty, can we have your permission to alter one word in the hymn that said Christ bore the wrath? They said, well, we'll change it to something like the love. And the Getty said, absolutely not. You cannot alter the whole meaning of the hymn, which you would do by taking out the wrath. Jesus took the wrath. It disfigured him. It ruined him physically and emotionally and spiritually. And yet it worked in and through him the positive consequences of our being at peace with God and being healed of sin because he took the consequences thereof. We as believers, you see, we can't be tried twice. God won't try you a second time for the trial that he subjected his son to. Jesus bore the wrath. Jesus paid the price. God will not say, oh, I see you coming along. I know my son already died for you, but now it's your turn. You have to die for what he already died. God doesn't say that. There's no double jeopardy. He was arraigned for what caused God's wrath on our behalf. The awful, unexpected cross is a place where we were healed and we were restored if we belong to him. Christ was there bearing my guilt so I don't have to. God will not try me again. And therefore it was our old identity that was slaughtered and speared and crushed and buried along with Christ so that what Paul said was absolutely true in Galatians 2.20. I am, I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. That old person no longer lives. Christ lives in me. You see, folks, the same Christ that we saw in Colossians 1 two weeks ago, the same Christ that we saw in Psalm 2 last week, the same Christ and no other is the Christ of Isaiah 53, who was shattered, who was crushed, who was made so despicable that you would have pulled back from him like a dead animal laying on the side of the road. Praise be to God alone, through Christ alone, for all that Isaiah the prophet foresaw in the historic message here that he could speak. And by the way, do you notice he speaks of it all in the past tense as if it's already happened? Because in the providence of God and in the work of God and the eternity of God, it has already happened. 
He has installed his king. He has sent his king. And the price that Jesus paid was as good as paid when God predicted it back here in Isaiah 53, what Jesus would do for me and for you. Count on it. Our Father, thank you. It's a horrible picture here, Lord. Not a pleasant one to read about. Not the exalted picture that we saw of the king on his throne last week. But thank you that that Christ is this Christ. We trust in him. We look to him. We believe that what he did and what he paid was the only price you require. Thank you, Father. For Jesus' sake. Amen.